Well, hello, hello. Welcome to TAO Intentions Podcast. Welcome back to the TAO Intentions Podcast. Before we start this episode, I just wanted to say thank you to the audience who have kept up to date, followed the channel, followed the social medias, and have supported this podcast since its conception. I am incredibly grateful to you all for taking the time out of your day and to listening to this podcast episode and any episode going forward. So on that note, for today's episode, we will continue our tribute to black culture and the women that paved a way for us, all of us, by just being amazing, by being heroes in their own right and fighting so we can have access to opportunities. Black excellence should be celebrated every day, not just for Black History Month. This is a great way to pay tribute to our fallen soldiers in history. For this episode, we are going to focus on Jamaican history, especially Black women in Jamaican history. Jamaica is an island located in the Caribbean Sea. It is the third largest island, and I am proud to say that I am from Jamaica. I love my country. I feel that it is the most spectacular place on this earth, but I might be a bit biased. Living in Canada has not changed the love I have for my country. I came to Canada when I was 12 years old. I was excited to experience something new, especially snow. In Jamaica, we do not have snow. But I do recall every Christmas watching all these Christmas movies where they had lots of snow, everyone seemed happy. They didn't even look like they were cold. I mean, they were not struggling at all. So upon my surprise, coming to Canada, I went directly to Quebec City, um, coming to Canada or moving to Canada, and I was so excited. I got off the plane, I got picked up from my mom, and you know we went to where she lived, which would now be our home, and I remembered getting out of the car and jumping in the snow. I was so happy to see it. I've never seen snow before, and I finally get to experience what I saw all of those people in movies during Christmas time, uh, making snow angels, making snowmen. It was just fascinating. And yeah, again, they did not look cold, but I was. I was very cold. I think a few days in, I would be outside. My mom gave me like the snow suits, the whole snow outfit. I thought it was kind of weird, but I do remember how cold it was getting out of the car and touching snow for the first time. So I said, all right, well, maybe, you know, my mom has the right idea. And I kept going out like every single day, playing in the snow. And I think around the first week or two is when I learned about frostbite. And I thought, you know, these movies that are portraying snow as just fluffy white things that don't hurt and it brings all this happiness, you know, they, they really did us a disjustice by portraying that. So I had to say, I still love snow, um, but unfortunately, it's freezing and it's cold and I would not recommend someone playing in the snow for too long. I mean, I see a lot of people going snowboarding and skiing for hours, and I just don't know how they do it. Mind you, I did try snowshoeing a few years back, and I thought I was going to freeze to death. But 
um, upon doing it, I realized that it's still a workout and it still increases the blood flow and the heart rate in your body. So I, I definitely, by the time I finished snowshoeing, I was sweating and I was super hot and I just felt like I was confined. So I guess the sport, the snow sports that we do here in Canada or any cold place in, on this earth, um, does really, really warm you up and you know could really turn into a fun experience so that was um, a winter activity that i did a few years back i did try and learn I, i paid for lessons for snowboarding and now that was an experience i thought i had you know killer legs you know as a as a black woman we have some good thighs and we have the glutes to to help us out but doing snowboarding was a workout i've never had to squat that much ever and hold a squat for every turn or every move you have to have balance um you have to be okay falling it was um, a painful experience but one of the best times i ever had i don't know if i would do snowboarding again because it was it was so much work And keep in mind, when they teach you to snowboard, they bring you on the bunny hill with like all the kids. And when I was in high school and this this girl, this Canadian girl comes up to me and she said, oh man, I went snowboarding and I fell a lot on the bunny hill. Like I laughed at her because in my mind, I was picturing like a really little hill. Like it was a tiny little hill. Like you can't fall off this hill. It's so tiny. So I, you know, now looking back, I feel like an idiot laughing at this Canadian girl for saying she fell a lot on the bunny hill because seeing a bunny hill for myself, I was thinking, this is crazy. This is a huge hill. And then when you go around the side, like where the main entrance is for the the skilled professional people who have been doing snowboarding and skiing for years, they're, they're coming down this huge hill. That hill would have terrified me. So the fact that, you know, you got to the bunny hill and you were thinking it's super slow or like super small, it's like half the size of a gigantic hill. I could slide down there on one of those those slides, but I don't know if I could do it standing. I feel like I would hit a bump or a roll or a fall, or whatever it is. I, it scared the shit out of me. So I really don't know how people snowboard. Um you know, every winter and they find it so fun. I was terrified. So I fell a lot on the bunny hill. Like, I don't know how these people do it. And I literally went home with bruises, especially on my bum and my legs. And my my thighs were so sore from all the squatting because with snowboard, you have to have the right structure and you, you need to squat to be able to navigate properly. You have to have your balance. So it's a lot of things to consider when you're when you're snowboarding. Um, so I think the next thing on my list when it comes to snow activities will be skiing. I feel that skiing might be a bit easier for me. I think I'm not sure you have two little slides on your feet and it's separated. Whereas a snowboard, you're doing it from the side, you're going down the hill from a side and you're navigating. So I'm not sure which is easier But the fact that I did snowboarding and I found that incredibly hard, I'm really hoping that skiing down a little bunny hill is going to be much easier for me. So it's definitely a sport and 
it's scary for me personally. I know that, you know, kids growing up and learning how to use to do these um, activities at a young age, they grow up not fearing it. Um, and so they're way more talented than I would have been because I only learned, again, like just a few years ago. I was still an adult. We, we still, you know, have a lot of fear in us because we're no longer children. But I felt that, you know, I, I really do enjoy Canada. And I mean, I'll dedicate another podcast episode kind of discussing um, certain things that I've already done in Canada that I truly enjoyed. But I just wanted to let you guys know a little bit of my background living in Canada in contrast to to Jamaica. And so going forward in this episode, I wanted to kind of focus on Jamaican heroes, especially black women who are Jamaican heroes that have truly paved the way. Here is a fact that I wanted to also mention before going into the podcast episode, is that Jamaica was the second country to be freed from slavery, to have its independence. The first country was Haiti, and I would love, you know, to talk to somebody um, who has knowledge and depth about the history of Haiti, because they paved the way for other islands to get their independence and you know i'm very thankful for that and a lot of people don't give the credit to haiti for what they have done for many islands to come and jamaica was second right after they fought for their independence and the struggle that they went through i would love to have someone come on the show and really talk about what they really went through in haiti and and discuss their history so jamaica was the second island to have receive their independence and again we fought for it and you know jamaica is a country that has been through a lot a lot a lot a lot a lot and so if we could break that all down in one episode um talking about the struggles um that jamaica has been through and you know the fighting nature of our people and what we've had to do to survive it would be a very intense um episode and that will be produced in the future once we've gotten a few people on board that will help with that podcast so let's begin with one of our first heroes in jamaica nanny of the maroons so before i get into talking about nanny of the maroons i wanted to just kind of give um a bit of information um about the era which she triumphantly succeeded at what she was put on this earth to do. So Jamaican Maroons are Africans who escaped from slavery on the colony of Jamaica. They established free communities in the mountains, escaped Africans who were enslaved by the Spanish during the 1493 to 1656 were some of the first to develop such a refugee community. The English invaded the island in 1655. The English expanded the importation of slaves to support their extensive development of sugarcane plantations. Africans in Jamaica continually fought and revolted. Many who escaped became the Maroons. The revolution disrupted the profitability of sugarcane economy in Jamaica. Nanny of the Maroons led the first Maroon War against the British from 1720 to 1739. 
Nanny was known for being a military leader by the British and the Maroons. She was skilled in organizing the guerrilla warfare to keep away the British troops from attempting to penetrate the mountains to overpower the runaway slaves. They freed themselves. She was also a wise woman, a chief in her time, who dedicated and educated runaway slaves by passing down legends and encouraged a continuation of customs, music, and songs that came from the people of Africa. She instilled confidence and pride. One of the things that I have to say about Nanny of the Maroons, I learned about Nanny when I was um, living in Jamaica in school, a part of um, learning our history. And I felt a deep connection to her just because she's a woman. And she was one of the only women that they really talked about her with such pride. And I thought to myself, listening to that story, like, wow, as a child, wow, she is a brave, strong, confident woman. I don't think that I would have had the strength that she had to fight during that time when the world is against you and you are suppressed and you are just considered to be, you know, labor or or an item to be sold and casted out and to be used and thrown out. So I don't know if... If I was in her time, if I could have stood beside her and fought against the discrimination, um, the racism, the the fact that, you know, they see you not as a person, but as a product to be used to profit off of. And so now looking back and, you know, talking about the story and sharing it with you, I am still, I still believe that I would suck <laughs> completely at leading a war against a nation as the British. And the reason why I would say that is because during that time, the British were known to be one of the most powerful armies in the world. Um, and they have conquered a lot of places. They have even people in Europe. If you listen, to, if you've actually researched the story of the Scottish, I mean, they came in with their guns. They came in in military form. And so they came to Jamaica now and are fighting against Africans and especially a woman as powerful as she as she is, who was so strategic, who knew exactly what she was doing and planned and organized everything to protect herself and her people. And so for them to even, you know, turn around and recognize her skill um, in warfare is is phenomenal. So when it comes to Nanny of the Maroons, to this day, I'm still wowed by her. I will always be wowed by her. I cannot see myself having the kind of strength that she did in that time and to fight against, to take on the responsibility of protecting everyone and militarizing, you know, people that maybe did not have that background and protecting such community and hold, also holding on to the African culture that they all came from and continuing to to progress and push that education so that these people going forward will never forget where they came from, never forget, you know, who they are. And for that, she is one of Jamaica's heroes. So in the 1982, Nanny was dubbed a national hero, a title held by seven Jamaicans who are all men. So she is one female amongst, you know, men. 
and she stood out. Um, her image is on a Jamaican banknote, the face of the $500 Jamaican bill. Jamaica is a British colony, so I would need to research what that entails uh, in a future podcast episode. So I can't really go into that much detail, but I just wanted to allow the audience yourself to understand the magnitude of her work and what she really what she really did for Jamaicans. And, you know, she started the progress to freedom for Jamaica. So the next phenomenal woman that we are going to talk about is Edna Manley. Edla Manley is the wife of Norman Manley, one of our seven national heroes. He founded the People's National Party, which is one of Jamaica's major political camps, and he is the first premier of Jamaica. Edna Manley was born to a Jamaican mother and an English father in Yorkshire. She received an extensive education in arts, uh, both through attending art schools and via private tutoring. She married Norman Manley and moved to Jamaica in 1922. So Edna was considered the mother of art when she arrived in Jamaica. Visual arts uh, were not ranked high on the list of priorities. The island life inspired Edna to change her own artwork for the better, which stirred a movement amongst Jamaicans. Mrs. Manley played a role in history of 20th century Jamaican art. Her work are in private collections, galleries, public building worldwide. In 1929, she was awarded the Institution of Jamaican's Silver Musgrove Medal. In 1943, she became the first recipient of the Gold Musgrove Medal for her outstanding contribution and leadership in the arts in Jamaica. In 1950, Edna was a co-founder of the Jamaican, Jamaican School of Art. One of Edna's most well-known pieces of work is Negro Aroused. The piece is a tribute to people of African heritage awakening to a new consciousness. I did see the art online of the Negro Aroused. Um, The name doesn't actually suit the art, but uh, I, I do appreciate the art. I'm not sure why she decided to name it that. Maybe it was to stir up controversy. I am not sure. But her art, it, it's actually quite beautiful. And it turned into, you know, monuments um, and is shared worldwide. So I really do appreciate that she brought art to Jamaica and that she developed these arts to inspire culture and from her experience living in Jamaica and being a part of the country as a whole and putting art from Jamaica on the map the way that she did in her time. So it's nice to kind of see a woman behind a strong man and he's paved a way for himself and made history. I mean, when you go to Jamaica, you get off of the plane, you see all of our national heroes and that's just in Kingston and you know you don't really see her amongst them but to know that she did contribute to the community the way that she did even while her her husband was off you know developing the country and building it up to to what it is today 
she was able to contribute in some way and to really bring forth an awakening in Jamaican culture as she did. So I really do appreciate what she has done for Jamaica. The next phenomenal woman on our list is Louise Bennett. Louise was a poet and a comedian. Before I get into her contributions to Jamaican culture and our history, let's talk a little bit about why she was needed, why she was such a powerful force in what she did. Jamaica being a British colony has made our culture accustomed to influences of the British. We are obsessed, well, I can only speak for myself, I'm obsessed, but we are obsessed with tea and our parliamentary politics of our curriculum made us true Commonwealth nation. Jamaican culture is also influenced by the English, the Irish, South Asia, East Asia, and the Spanish. And let's not forget African, um, because we are descendants of African. This is due to our ties to these countries. Their language, dress, and customs have melted into Jamaican culture. The British reputation of properness and cleanliness is near to godliness has meant that Jamaicans felt the need to set aside elements of cultural identity. Their need to promote social classism by uplifting speaking English over Jamaican Patois has created somewhat of a friction within the country. Jamaican Patois was considered the language of lower class and the uneducated. Of course, educated and wealthy spoke English. So now let's go into why Louise was so important to this cause. Louise did not approve of the regulation on such an important aspect of our culture to the back seat. So she made it her goal to bring Jamaican Patwa to the forefront through comedy and poetry. The more people laughed and enjoyed her work, the more Jamaican Patwa became acceptable in Jamaican society. Her poems are taught in schools, usually as part of English lecture classes. No one can dispute the efforts or effects her work had on making Jamaican of all color, creed, and classes once again proud of the language we forge as blacks, Indians, Chinese, Irish, or Germans working together on sugarcane plantation. I really appreciate that, you know, Louise took the time and made the effort to truly push a language that has been developed over years and time due to our connection and ties to certain cultures and honestly Jamaica wouldn't be Jamaica if we did not speak Patois. Now growing up um, I do feel that the social classism of speaking English has been at the forefront of our our culture. Even growing up you know I've been told by many people that if you want to get a good job, you need to be able to speak proper English. If you want to be successful in Jamaica, you need to speak proper English. You will amount to something if you speak proper English. So I feel that even though she has worked so hard to make sure that 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 culture, our Jamaican culture and our history with slavery and 
and you know the language that was developed during that time she pushed for that to to remain in history and to to remain a part of our culture i still feel that jamaicans still struggle with that you seem more proper and educated if you speak english and it is really sad because some of the people that i've met who you know speak patua they're not dumb they're they're very educated and straightforward people and they have a lot to contribute to their country so i still feel like that is still an issue it is something that has been passed down through generations and i'm proud that she took the time to really try to to make jamaicans and future generations growing up in jamaica be proud of who they are be proud of the language and be proud of their history so the next phenomenal woman on the list is Merlene Otti. Merlene was the fastest woman in the world before Usain Bolt. She was in track and field and a nine-time Olympic medalist. She still lives in Jamaica and she is the most decorated Jamaican female athlete. She competed from 1978 to 2002 and continued to compete until 2012. She was honored with an eight-foot statue in thanks for her contribution to Jamaica. Prime Minister Percival James Patterson said these words, Your life is one of legendary endurance. From Moscow to Sydney, you showed the world that Jamaica is a force to be reckoned with in athletics. You have always displayed determination and grit. Your success in track and field is unparalleled. We know we can't take the Jamaican out of you. No matter where you roam, this will always be your home. We love you and we shall always cherish everything that you have achieved while emblazed in black, green, and yellow. Merlene Otti paved the way for athletes such as Shelly Ann Fraser Pierce, a Jamaican sprinter and gold medalist. So I really do appreciate her story. She was one of the fastest women in the world for a long time and before Usain Bolt even came on the scene. And so I really had to dedicate a section of this podcast episode to her greatness. I hope you do a little bit more research on her. She is amazing. I do want to take this moment to give credit to the website that honored this wonderful young lady with strength and valor. Um, it was alexischateau.com. So definitely go and check out the website and read up on some of these wonderful heroes. You know, to put this in the universe, I would love, 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 love to interview this individual that wrote all of this. She used impeccable words to describe the greatness of each and every one of the women that she featured in her website. And so I, if, if she's out there and she's listening to this, I really hope that she knows that I would love to have her on this podcast to have a discussion about her writing, her work of art, and just to have her explain her passion of Jamaican heroes. Just wanted to touch a little bit about Marlene Otti's uh, story. There is a sad part about, this, about her story that I would like to share. The saddest part about her story was the death of her cousin in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, Mersha and Tamara Otti. They were raped and brutally murdered by 
Marsha's ex-boyfriend and his friend. Marsha was stabbed about 19 times after the assault in her chest and throat, and her sister Tamara was stabbed and her uh, throat was slit after her assault by the friend. That same friend killed a transit uh, driver, and that's how they caught him. The ex-boyfriend was hiding in Jamaica, but he was brought back and sentenced to prison. He is up for parole this year, 2021, which again is very sad. Um, Marsha was following in her cousin's footsteps and received a 80K scholarship. She was well on her way to achieving her dreams. And so that was the only downside to Atiza's story. I am completely saddened by the pain that these young women mother must be going through. Because I think in the report that I had read, you know, she went to work and it was a single household. So she was taking care of two daughters. And, you know, before she left, her daughter said, if something was to happen to me, it's my ex-boyfriend that did it. And so the mother didn't really understand. She knew it was a toxic relationship and she knew that they were no longer together. But she did not understand what was happening to her daughter at school. After she came back from work, she came to her house and she realized the door was ajar. And she came in and she saw that the place was ransacked. She went up to her room to see what happened there. And she said, you know, she saw that her underwear drawer was spilled out and her underwears were all over the place. And so she thought to herself, if they were trying to rob her, she didn't understand why they would try to rob her. She has no money. She's poor. It's a single household taking care of two daughters. That's a lot of money that she's you know dishing out to support her daughters in their dream and then she said she went downstairs and she saw her daughter just lying there in the basement in you know just her panties and stabbed to death and she thought how could someone do that to somebody to think about it 19 times that's hatred that is complete hatred so I can only assume that he found out that she got a scholarship to go to a university somewhere and he did not want her to leave Toronto. He wanted to stay there and he terrorized her friends and if a guy was to ever talk to her, he would terrorize him as well. So I guess, you know, he just had a, a very toxic mind frame and maybe even an, a, a mental illness at this point to go as far as he did to try to make this young lady's life miserable while she was in high school. To I guess, again, he found out and he got a friend and went to the house and did horrible things. And so she did not know that her other daughter was in the basement, stabbed to death as well. She said she went to the phone to, to call 911, but I guess the phone wasn't working. So I'm not sure if they cut the phone cord so that, you know, the girls couldn't call for help or anything. So she ran to, her, ran to her neighbor's house and got them to call the cops for her. And by the time the cops came, she realized that her other daughter was in the basement as well, raped and stabbed with her throat slit. So it was, that is, that was a very heartbreaking story and quite traumatizing. I have no idea what the mother is feeling to witness her two daughters like that. And, you know, just reading the story just brought me to tears 
because I, I wouldn't know how to, to handle that. That is horrific. Heart goes out to the mother that experienced that. I just hope that she's she's doing well, that she's past her grieving. Keep in mind this all happened in about 1995, and I think the case was even dragged out in court. So I think he got sentenced in about, what was it, 2011? So that's a long time to be reliving that day in court, um, watching these two boys that murdered and killed her children, her babies. So it, it was a, a devastating read for me, definitely. So on to the next uh, phenomenal woman, Joan McDonald. Joan McDonald was the first to hold an official title of Miss Jamaica World. She is also the first winner of full African descent. She's a coach, mentor, volunteer, and philanthropist. She was appointed CCRP Wellness Ambassador. So CCRP is a not-for-profit member organization for persons 50 plus. CCRP stands for the Caribbean Community of Retired Persons. She has completed a variety of work in the field of public service. In 2019, she was honored with a congressional proclamation at Jamaica's 57th annual Black Tie Gala in New York. Before her win, she was a dance teacher at Woolmer's Girls School in Kingston, Jamaica. She established a successful career as an event planner and personal development coach grooming contestants for Miss Jamaica World and Miss Jamaica Festival Queen, as well as mentoring Queen Mothers. She's also an active member of the Lions Club of Kingston, a Justice of the Peace, and trained facilitator for restorative and community justice practice. And so she took the opportunity that was given to her to make movements in the community of Jamaica. And I really do appreciate her story because to be the first full black African descendant woman to win Miss Jamaica World, that is a big deal. It really is. It means that the community recognizes the beauty of a black woman and the beauty of that reflects the community at large. So I just wanted to kind of add her, or not kind of, I wanted to add her to the list of people that have really influenced Jamaican history and to add her to that list as a strong black woman, a phenomenal woman who has really paved the way for many others after her. And so that concludes this episode of Black Women in Jamaican History. I hope you all enjoyed the show. Don't forget to click the follow button under TAO Intentions Podcast on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcast. TAO social media pages are Facebook at The Ambitious Obsession, Instagram and Twitter at The Ambitious Ops. Now, I hope you all have a wonderful day.